Today's episode is brought to you by Mentos Pure Fresh Gum. It's time to get energized. We actually almost didn't even bother looking at the place because the pictures did not do it justice. But we we're like, you know what? Just for just for the sake of doing our due diligence, let's go see this house. That's Melissa Martin. And that house was in a little town in Louisiana just a few weeks ago. And then when we got in here, it was something something about the place kind of hit us in the face of like, like, oh, wait. Oh, wait, this feels like us. There, there was a vibe. Melissa grew up in Seattle. Her wife was raised in Louisiana. And the two of them are part of a growing number of Americans buying homes right now in the middle of a pandemic. Talk to realtors, housing experts, or anybody with a house in the suburbs getting postcards under the door saying, list your house now, you will find a buyer. They see this story playing out. But it's only one story. Because something else is happening in the housing market at this exact same time. A story of people for whom buying a house feels further out of reach than ever. And it was already hard. Welcome to Skim This. This week, we'll explain why you might be getting mixed signals from the housing market. Then, Mulan and Tenet. This summer's big Hollywood blockbusters dropped this week, but it sure doesn't feel like summer movie season. Also, it's September, not 4th of July weekend. Oh, and if you're thinking this show sounds a bit different today, you're right. Our host is on vacation, and we'll be back next week. All right, first up, we've got some context on two big developing stories. The first has to do with a new term getting thrown around this week, domestic terror. That term came up during a presidential visit to Kenosha, Wisconsin. That's the town where Jacob Blake was shot by police late last month and where a vigilante gunman shot and killed two protesters and injured a third last week. President Trump arrived in Kenosha on Tuesday, and during a roundtable event with local leaders and police, he was asked if systemic racism might explain why Jacob Blake and so many other people of color in the U.S. have been shot by police. Well, you know, you just keep getting back to the opposite subject. We should talk about the kind of violence that we've seen in Portland and here and other places. It's tremendous violence. You always get to the other side. Well, what do you think about this or that? The fact is that we've seen tremendous violence and uh, we will put it out very, very quickly if given the chance. Trump went on to accuse people who took to the streets in Kenosha of not being peaceful at all, saying there were rioters and looters, agitators and even anarchists in their ranks. And then he slipped in this. These are not acts of peaceful protest, but really domestic terror. In the world of law enforcement and homeland security, it's a big deal when the word terror is used. Usually it's used in reference to foreign terrorist organizations. So what is domestic terrorism? And does anything that's happened in Kenosha, including looting or the destruction of property, meet the definition of domestic terror? I am Laura Dugan. I am a professor of criminology and criminal justice from the University of Maryland. Dugan helps oversee the world's most comprehensive database on terror attacks, which contains every known attack in every country going back to 1970. The term domestic terrorism is, is something that's not quite appropriate here. And the reason is because 
despite the fact that there are a lot of different definitions of terrorism, all of them incorporate the idea of intentional violence or threat of violence directed at targets for very strategic reasons. And so these are planned out events. Dugan says, yeah, some of the protests we've been seeing lately are planned. But that's where any resemblance to terrorism pretty much ends. She says the violence erupting from protests has mostly been impulsive, not strategic. And if you're wondering what the criminal charge is for burning down a building, it's arson, not domestic terrorism. So why throw around this term anyway? Dugan thinks the goal is political, that it's about painting people in the streets as villains and boiling down the situation in the U.S. right now into a simple good versus evil equation. And the president can't actually label a group of people as domestic terrorists anyways. There's not even a legal definition for this. Instead, throwing around the term is a great way to mark a group of people with a scarlet letter and delegitimize their cause. People who are running for public office try to simplify things as much as possible because they want sound bites so that voters will hear those sound bites and, and support them. Whereas in almost all cases, the real story is much more complex. For more updates on the situation in Kenosha and the context behind every soundbite, be sure to subscribe to our morning newsletter, The Daily Skim. You can subscribe at theskim.com. Our second developing story this week has to do with the COVID-19 death count in the United States. And this story is also about definitions and how statistics get talked about by politicians and people in the media. That's because last week, the CDC released updated guidance that suggested of the people who had been killed by COVID-19 in the U.S., 94% had other health conditions that contributed to their death. Cue a lot of confusion, because those numbers quickly got misinterpreted. Some people claimed on social media that the CDC had dramatically lowered its COVID-19 death count to just 9,000 people, which it hadn't. And another false claim was that only 6% of reported deaths had anything to do with COVID. That also started swirling around the internet. And this misinformation even made it onto President Trump's Twitter feed. The president retweeted a post claiming that the death toll had been overstated. Twitter actually went on to remove that post because it violated their COVID misinformation policy. And now epidemiologists are trying to separate fact from fiction so that misinformation doesn't cloud this public health crisis. Here's what those numbers from the CDC actually mean. First, we should note nothing has fundamentally changed what we already know about this virus. The CDC has said for months that people with underlying health issues are at greater risk for complications from COVID-19. And the nation's top public health officials, Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Burks, have agreed, noting that COVID-19 poses a greater risk for people of all ages who have health conditions like heart disease or obesity. But even though these conditions are pre-existing, doesn't mean they are the cause of death. In fact, the CDC considers COVID-19 to be the underlying cause of death for all cases where the individual had a health condition already. And this week, Dr. Fauci went on Good Morning America to clear the noise. 
that does not mean that someone who has hypertension or diabetes who dies of COVID didn't die of COVID-19. They did. So the numbers that you've been hearing, the 180,000 plus deaths are real deaths from COVID-19. Let that not be any confusion about that. And even those numbers may not tell the whole story. That's because scientists and public health experts have also warned that COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. have been undercounted because of an early lack of testing and because some people died in their homes. Basically, the opposite of what people on Twitter and the president have been saying. And finally, as infections continue to rise and new virus hotspots emerge, it's looking like this weekend could be a turning point for the whole country. According to Dr. Fauci, if everyone takes precautions this Labor Day weekend, the U.S. might have a better shot at curbing the spread of the virus this fall. So please, follow health guidelines, wear a mask, practice social distancing, and keep on washing your hands. These days, we're all spending a lot of time in the same routines, and it's easy to get stuck in a rut. The solution? Refresh and energize with Mentos Pure Fresh Gum. It comes in a package that's easy to pop in your bag or keep in the car, whether you need fresh breath behind your mask or a way to keep things fresh while you work from home. Mentos Pure Fresh Gum has you covered. Get a burst of freshness with Mentos Pure Fresh Gum. Go to mentos.com to find your perfect piece today. A story about millennials and buying homes is going to feature some bad news, right? We all know adulting is hard, and 2020 hasn't been easy. But first, we want to share a really good story. So we called up Melissa Martin in that small town in Louisiana that we mentioned earlier. Her dogs actually answered first. <laughs> Melissa, who's a baker, and her wife, an audio producer, had been living in Seattle, but it was expensive. And that was before the pandemic. We wanted to buy a house in Seattle. We went to the, our bank, got a pre-approval for a loan. We got 250000 The only thing we found in that price range was outside of Seattle, in the Kent area. So it's about maybe 30, 40 minutes outside of Seattle, one-bedroom condo. It was around then that a wedding brought the two of them back to Louisiana, her wife's home state. And one night, they were up talking to a cousin when the conversation turned to housing. We were talking to her about how much she paid for her mortgage, and, and she was like, mm-mm, it was, you know, it's very affordable, around $600 a month. She had a three-bedroom, two-bath house with sitting on a quarter acre or something like that. And we were like, wait a minute. <laughs> So you're, so you're sitting here telling me face-to-face that for less than half of what we would pay in Seattle, we're getting twice as much, if not more. So that was another kind of the reason we were like, Louisiana's the place. We have family, we have a support system, but it's also, it's going to be affordable. We could play a lot more of Melissa's story, but to skim it, they bought an RV off a relative, packed up their stuff from Seattle, and drove across the country. And the plan was to park the RV for maybe a year save up, and then buy a house. And in the meantime, they fostered two dogs, assuming they'd stay pretty small. You know, RV-sized dogs. That didn't happen. We thought Jack Russell-sized tops. 
Um, and one of them actually turned out to be, he's, we're pretty sure he's an English pointer and maybe lab mix. So he's a chunky boy. He's big. <laughs> a bigger than expected pup, plus the demands of their jobs, led Melissa and her wife to start the home search earlier than they planned. Remember, she's a baker and living in an RV in the summer in Louisiana with the oven on constantly. You know, we've all reached our quarantine breaking points, but that one is particularly rough. So they crunched the house numbers and realized they could get an FHA loan insured by the federal government with a pretty small down payment. And the rest was history. Melissa is finally baking again out of a real oven now instead of in the RV. And her direct-to-consumer culinary hustle, the Little Bee's Bakery, is back in business. Moving to Louisiana was a surprise twist in life, she says. But if she'd stayed in Seattle, she wouldn't own the roof over her head. Depending on who you are and what you want to do with your life, like sometimes you've got to go where there's nothing and just say, I'm going to just have to be okay with living in a different situation. Move out to the country, move out to a bad, a quote unquote bad area or where there's nothing at, because sometimes you don't realize it, but that's what you need to be able to be like, let me get away from everything else. See what I have right here inside of me so that you can start focusing on that. Backing up, there are two things that made Melissa's move work, low mortgage rates and geography. With COVID-19 lockdowns still in place in most big cities, the draw of expensive cities like Seattle or Chicago or New York just isn't what it used to be. Diana Minshall is a real estate agent with Sotheby's International Realty in Washington, D.C. She also sells properties in Manhattan and is seeing a lot of people moving away. You know, the whole reason to sort of stick it out in a small apartment is because of what the city has to offer. And when you take that away from the equation, why not move? It's a better quality of life. A little later on, we'll talk about the suburbs where a lot of these former city dwellers are moving. But if you're willing to leave the coasts behind, home prices in many parts of the South and the Midwest can feel pretty reasonable by comparison. Hence, Louisiana. And the other thing, making it possible for Melissa and her wife to move now, in the middle of a totally disruptive global pandemic, is that according to mortgage buyer Freddie Mac, mortgage rates are basically at record lows. Just when you think we can't go any lower, mortgage rates have fallen to a record low for the eighth time this Interest year. Interest rates it's making are at historic lows. We've seen rates just drop like really we've ever seen before. Gotta love dramatic local news sound effects. <laughs> anyway, 2.93%. That's this week's rate for a 30-year fixed mortgage. It's the mortgage most people use to get into a house. How low is this? Well, the same rate was around 3.5% last year. A decade ago, it was 4.3%. And for some even more historic reference, rates above 10 and even 15% were common in the 1980s. So with mortgage rates near record lows, some people are finding they can make the math of homeownership work. But... Yeah, there's always a but. You may have seen a meme that's been circulating around the internet for a few years. It's of a man standing behind a tree in a park, and he's grinning. He's rubbing his hands together like he's really excited about something he sees. And above him are the words, millennial home buyers. And below him, it says, waiting for the next recession. Pretty much since we graduated high school, millennials have felt like 
our generation has rotten luck. Getting into college was really hard. Then the Great Recession hurt the economy for years, meaning a lot of millennials entered a really tough job market. So when things finally started looking a wee bit better in the last few years, millennials might have been right to think the luck might finally swing in our favor. That mostly hasn't happened. Jeff Zucker is an economist with Zillow, the online real estate database. And here he was on Yahoo Finance a few weeks ago. A lot of people in the millennial generation who have already sort of put off homeownership longer than previous generations, I think a lot of people were sort of thinking one silver lining of this recession might be a chance to buy, a, you know, to be able to afford a home finally. Uh, but if, you know, if there were really any bargains on prices, it may have been back in April and May, but we never really saw prices drop this time around. Not only have home prices not dropped, according to a new report, they're actually going up. A new study out this week says median home prices are up 11% compared to a year ago. And our realtor friend Diana says, depending on where you're looking for a house, there just might not be any to buy, no matter what you're willing to pay. It is harder to get a house in the suburbs right now than it is to find a golden retriever puppy. You've probably heard about this. Some people in cities are moving, at least temporarily, realizing it's not worth spending a huge chunk of their salaries renting an apartment if they could move 20 miles away to the suburbs and have a yard, maybe an extra bedroom, and a good school to send their kids to. A CNBC reporter broke down this trend in July. A lot of it is people wanting to get the new high-tech homes, get more space for homeschooling, home office, etc., and also looking to get outside of cities. Totally fine dream, if you can realize it. Because demand for those homes is through the roof right now in some places. Everybody is sort of in a position right now where they would love to trade up to that bigger house in the suburbs, but there's just nothing to sell them. One reason for this has to do with those same low interest rates that we talked about earlier. And this is a little bit of a paradox. Because you'd think that with so many people wanting to buy homes in the suburbs, shouldn't people with those homes be scrambling to sell them at a high price? The thing is, according to some reports, this isn't happening because sellers are worried that even if they can sell quickly, they'll just get stuck bidding against lots of other people looking for their next homes. So a lot of people with these homes that people really want to buy right now are just refinancing their mortgages. They're effectively going to the bank and negotiating a better mortgage and then just walking away, paying less per month to stay right where they are. That means there just aren't many homes left on the market, especially for first-time home buyers. It's gotten increasingly harder to find a home that fits that criteria. And the problem is that because that trend went towards those McMansions and big spaces and big yards, you know, those little starter homes are sort of getting gobbled up. For years, new construction of affordable, single and multifamily homes hasn't kept up with demand. And COVID-19 construction shutdowns could mean even fewer of these homes will be up for sale in the near future. High prices and not enough starter homes aren't the only barriers to buying a house. A lot of people don't have support systems on the other side of the country, and especially not in areas where buying a home is affordable. Our kids might be in great schools we don't want to leave behind, or our families might need us around to take care of them. 
Or our jobs might require us to stay put in expensive cities. Michael Neal is a housing economist at the Urban Institute, a think tank where he studies housing finance. And he says it's true. Moving away from a city could mean younger people have a better shot at buying a house. But leaving the city comes with its own risks. Housing affordability tends to be a little bit better in the middle of the country than it is on the coast. But the job growth is really takes place in a lot of those coastal areas. Uh, D.C., New York, you know, L.A., San Francisco, places like that. And so there really is this mismatch that I think younger people were really struggling with. And that's just one complicated economic challenge facing young people who might one day hope to be able to buy a home. The ability to save for a down payment of which student loan debt can play a role. The degree to which you struggle to pay your student loans, that has ramifications for credit scores. The degree to which the kind of job that you were able to get after the Great Recession um, did not allow you to make uh, enough income um, in order to in order to save. The struggle is real, which makes us think of one other millennial finance meme. It's the one with Leonardo DiCaprio looking into the camera and raising his champagne glass as fireworks go off in the background. It's from The Great Gatsby. And above him, it says, thank you, student loans, for helping me get through college. And below him, I don't think I can ever repay you. Ah, nothing like a healthy dose of reality from your Instagram feed. So what's the skim? No matter what you do or where you live, COVID-19 is causing a lot of people to weigh their housing options. For some, low mortgage rates and the end of business as usual means now is as good a time as ever to toss out the script and move. But for many others, the housing situation is looking quite a bit scarier. And if you're thinking, this doesn't apply to me, I rent? Well, when homes are flying off the market, higher rents can sometimes follow. And even if they don't, pre-COVID data showed that close to half of American renters spend more than 30% of their income on housing. And COVID has disproportionately hurt the earnings of Americans already struggling to get by. So the challenges Americans face just to put a roof over their heads may not go away anytime soon. In the coming weeks, we're going to keep looking into how COVID-19 is impacting the lives and finances of skimmers. And we'd love if you shared your story with us. So to get in touch, check out our show notes. Before we go today, we just wanted to remind you, it's summer blockbuster time. Hey, somebody get on Fandango. Okay, then. Guess not everyone's with me on this one. Yeah, it's kind of been a dud for summer movies. I think the biggest movie of the summer was like Trolls or something. Who was that? There are other kinds of trolls. Janita Davis is a film critic and runs the website theblackcape.com. She recently went to see the latest movie from the X-Men cinematic universe, The New Mutants. Any other summer, it would have been a huge draw for families and kids. I happened to score a seat in a theater all by myself. I was sitting there and watching this and I'm like, this is it? I mean, having to like risk my health to go to a theater, it needs to be more. Well, this lacking summer blockbuster season isn't just about one bad franchise movie. Disney's live-action Mulan remake actually came out today. 
but don't start stashing canned wine in a seasonally inappropriate jacket and heading to the movie theater just yet. For now, Mulan's only on Disney Plus in the United States, and you'll have to pay an extra $30 on top of your normal subscription cost just to rent it if you don't want to wait until December. So hello watching Hamilton for the hundredth time. But if you insist on going to the theater, feast your eyes on Tenet, the latest time-traveling action thriller from the guy who made Inception, Christopher Nolan. Actually, so far so good with this one. Tenet has already raked in more than $50 million overseas. And here in the US, Hollywood is hoping this big release is just the trick to get people back into movie theaters that have mostly been empty since March. Davis thinks it's a risky move. They've got to be careful because the moment someone catches this virus and says they got it at a movie, they're done. They're done. You can take the whole industry. And I just really think that they need to think about that. Well, if you want to help Hollywood avoid certain doom or just never like sticky cup holders or $8 bunch of crunch, Davis is here to help. She says this summer really ought to have been about indies independent films that have been wowing critics at virtual film festivals lately, like the film Finding Ying Ying. It's a documentary about the abduction of a foreign student at the University of Illinois. And despite getting buzz at South by Southwest, no streaming service has picked it up, which makes zero sense because we watched an hour-long FBI interview about this case on YouTube and we're hooked. We just don't want to bring hand sanitizer, Clorox wipes, and a mask to the theater to have to learn more. Call Your Girlfriend is a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere, which is now basically all of us. Listen as best friends Aminatu So and Anne Friedman catch up every week. And just like chatting with your hilarious, skim-obsessed BFF, their conversations cover everything from the personal to the political. Right now, Aminatu and Anne are in the midst of their Summer of Friendship series, taking a deep look at their own story and talking to experts about the huge role that friendship plays in all of our lives. Find Call Your Girlfriend wherever you're listening right now or at callyourgirlfriend.com. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Ellen Burke, Alex Carr, and Marion Lozano. I'm your host, Luke Vargas. We'll be back with a familiar voice in your feed again next Friday. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.